All right, so if you have a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 1. Let me read our text today. We're going to move into a very important part of Genesis. Um, calling this, we're actually going to do uh, four weeks on this, um, calling it Imago Dei, which is Latin for the image of God. And so today we're going to talk about identity. Next week we're going to talk about what being created in the image of God means for community. And then after that will be marriage. And then after that will be mission. So the next four weeks we're going to be looking at chapter 1 and chapter 2. Um, what it means to be made in the image of God. So let me read this to you, and let me pray and ask God for a lot of help this evening. Verse 26. And then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Let's pray. God, I ask you this evening for help. Um, as a created being, I'm completely dependent upon you for breath, for thought. I need you tonight. I ask God that you would... Um, that you would give faith to the hearers tonight, that you would give us faith to believe. I don't claim to know everything about everyone here or even anything about everyone here, but you know every intimate detail of every single soul that's in this building. And I pray tonight that you would speak to them specifically. We ask tonight, we don't want to hear from a man, we want to hear from God. And so I pray that you give us faith to hear, you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart to receive a mind that, that really thinks through the implications of what your word says. We place ourselves underneath the authority of it. We say, you are the Lord and there is no other. God, speak to us tonight. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this evening we are approaching a probably a very personal subject, one that's even a bit controversial, um, but I believe it's an essential piece of God's story, especially as the Bible begins in Genesis 1. Tonight, we're going to talk about the creation of man, which is a very touchy subject. It, so far in our text, it's been like this. It's been like the drumroll of creation. If you remember that from several weeks ago, the drumroll of creation in chapter 1, remember when we said that chapter 1 opened like this, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and, and void. And so you're, you're looking at, at, at Genesis 1, you're like, okay, God created the heavens and the earth, but the earth is formless and without void. What's happening next? And there was darkness over the face of the deep, so it sounds a bit chaotic. But then we get the, brrr, the drum roll, the like, the anticipation. Something's going to happen next, and this is the, the drum roll. It's the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And we call that the cosmic drum roll. It's like God's just about to do something. It's a drum roll going into something amazing. And the drum roll of creation has progressed into the verse of God's song. 
and Genesis chapter 1 reads very poetically. There's prose here. There's, it's repetitive. Um, morning, uh, evening, morning, day one. Evening, morning, day two. And God said, and it was. And God said, and it was. It like progresses into the song of creation. And now finally we come to the chorus. Finally we come to the apex of creation. Now we come to the creation of man. And it really is a chorus here. That is what's going on. Because for the first time, the personal pronoun changes from, and he said, and it was, and he said, and it was, to let us make man in our image. So if you're just reading this, just flat out picking this up and reading it, and you're, you're going to notice that right away. You're like, okay, wait, the, the, the personal pronoun changes now. It's like he's saying, let us make man in our image. That's different. That changes. And it's the chorus of the Trinity. It's the chorus of the heavenly court. And the chorus sounds like this. It's the most poetic part of Genesis chapter 1. It sounds like this. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created man. Male and female, he created them. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created man. Male and female, he created them. This is poetic parallelism. A statement followed by a restatement. So the statement is this. God created man in his own image. Then a restatement. In the image of God, he created man. This has been called the genius of 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 Hebrew, a Hebraic poetry. This is the kind of the crowning moment in Genesis chapter 1. And it's at this point where Genesis 1 gets extremely personal. So we've talked about how God created everything, how he's given everything function, how he's, how he's called things into being, and not just materially, but actually giving things, things to uh, form to where they work. The light has boundaries, and it works, and, and, and the earth works, and plants work. It's all functioning inside of God's created order. But now what we see here is it gets very personal because you can almost see that and go, okay, whatever. But here it's talking about you. Here it's talking about me. And it answers this question. What does it mean to be human? It actually speaks to our identity. And I don't really think we know something until we place whatever it is into a greater context of the world around us. Let me give you an example of this. Um, we, it, it takes us to step back from this and go, who am I and what does God say about me to, for us to really know who we are? It's only when we placed ourselves in a larger context when we see who we really are. Let me, an uh, example of this would be, I grew up in Bakersfield, California. So I grew up there and I thought life was like that until I moved. Like life's not like that. Those of you who lived in San Francisco a long time think that everyone thinks like San Franciscans and you leave San Francisco and you're like, Nobody thinks like San Francisco. <laughs> Completely different. You don't really know where you live and what it's like until you leave it. And you're like, wow, I, I, I get it now. I place it in a context of a bigger world. This is, this, this is the exact same thing that happens with our identity. You don't really know who you are until you place it inside of a bigger context. We often try to find ourselves by starting with ourselves. We look within ourselves to find an identity. We look within. We look to what we do or what we have. Typically, to try to find who we are, we start with us. We look in the mirror. We reflect. We meditate. But unless you start with something outside of you, you'll never find you. And so today, what I want to do is I want, you to, I want to ask you to come with me as we leave ourselves and start with God. Because that's what Genesis 1 is doing. It's leaving ourselves and going, okay, let's put ourselves aside for, for a bit here. And let's start with God. What does God say about us? What does God say about how we were made and how we were shaped and what we need? 
What does God say about who we are? And I want to read Genesis like that. I want to read Genesis 1 like this. Who does God say that I am? And in order to get there, in order to get here, we have to leave the homeland that allows us to create our own identity and go back to Genesis where God, our maker, speaks to us about who he is and how he made us and why he made us and how we function in this created order. One author said it this way. It was God who created humanity, and therefore only God can reveal to us our identity and function as humans. And without this biblical revelation, we are lost in a maze of confusion. Unless God, we step back and allow God to speak to us and give us revelatory insight into who we are, we're lost in this maze of confusion. This happens with our careers. This happens with our marriages, with our relationships, with everything. Unless we step back and allow God to speak into our lives, this is how I made you, and this is how I made you to function, we're lost in a maze of confusion. So what does this text teach us about our human identity? What does it mean to be human? Well, first, you can write this down. First, it means this, and you must establish this first. It says that you, you, are a unique creation of God. You are a unique creation of God. Now, as I said that, there's not many people in this room that went, oh my gosh, that was so profound, Pastor. Like, seriously, I've, that, that was great. I mean, no one does that. When you hear that, you're like, Ma, okay. My, uh, my wife was uh, babysitting a, uh, a three-year-old, uh, just turned three-year-old little, little boy recently, and um, uh, dinner time and bath time and then after bath, getting them ready for bed, putting them on the changing table, getting them all ready for bed. And, and when the sun comes out, you know, in October, um, my wife gets like freckles and it's super cute. And so he's like, notices her freckles, like, you have freckles. She says, yeah, I got freckles. I'm like, well, wh- where'd you get freckles? It's like, well, that's how God made me. Like, God made you? It's like, yeah, God made me. Well, did God make me? It's like, yeah, God made you. Well, did God make mommy and daddy? Yeah, God made mommy and daddy. So he stands up. And Ashley's got excited, like, this is a really cool moment. Then she, he looks at Ashley and goes, all the single ladies, all the single, like, just breaks out in song. That has nothing to do with anything. And Ashley's like, whoa, I thought we were having, uh, like, a moment. I thought we were, like, this were going deep. And then, then she put in a bed. So this is, okay, this is normally, not to say that you break out in Beyonce when you hear this, but when you hear this, the first thing, this is what happens. You go, okay. I'm created in the image of God. And then we're like, next point, please. Let's move on. If you're Christian in here, you probably go, yeah, 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 we know that. I'm ma- God made me. Okay, move on. Or if you're not Christian, you're like, yeah, okay, God, I, whatever. God, I'll give you that. Does it, d- d- how does it affect my life? It doesn't at all. And we've kind of moved on to greater things. But we can't do that. When we look at this text, it, look, at, look at the way this text reads. First it says, when it, when it gets to creation of man, the creation account absolutely slows down. I mean, it's rolling, it's moving fast, and then it slows down, and the text completely almost stops, and then the personal pronoun changes. This is huge. From he created, he created, he created, and it was to let us make man in our image. See, only when God creates us does he refer to his own plurality. It's only when he creates humanity. All of us, I mean, that's always been there. That's been there from Genesis 1-1. We all know that. It's, but it's explicit. It explicitly comes out when he creates humanity. Let us make man in our image. 
It's when he creates us that he refers to his own plurality. It's like the plurality of God comes out then. And it's particularly when God creates us that all of this comes out. So what does this mean? Well, first, look at it like this. Both plant life and animal life in Genesis 1 say it comes from the ground. That's how the text reads. Let the earth bring forth, right? That's how it reads. And then when it gets to animal life in verse 24, God says this. He created animals each according to their kinds. Verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 24. Now, many people point out that this verse is used to prove that evolution is wrong. They're created each according to their kinds, which isn't really the point of that phrase. That may or may not be good application. That's not the point of the phrase. This is the point of the phrase. The point of the phrase, each according to their kind, is to show contrast. Animals were created each according to their kind, but what kind was man created after? The likeness of God. He was created in the image. She was created in the image of God, after the likeness of God. That's why that's there, to show contrast. Man was uniquely created. Animals were created according to their kind, but man was created in the likeness of God. And that's the point. The point is the contrast. So not only are we created by God, we're created like God. You were created like God. That might trip some of you guys out. Why does the text allude to the whole trinity, the triunity of God when he creates man? Because God created us in his image. And God is a community. God is a triunity. And that's why he created us, and that's why it's brought up. So do you see how, why now maybe it's starting to make sense why he created us male and female? Too often the image of God is limited to men. Men reflect the image of God. That's a, a lie. It's an abuse of Genesis 1. The, the text clearly says that man, Adam in Hebrew, this is really, really uh, trippy here. Let me... It's a, it's a triptych and trippy. So look, look at this on the, on the screen. Genesis 1.27 is a triptych. So it says, man, Adam in, in Hebrew, or Adam in Hebrew, man is, created in God, is God's creation. Man is created in God's image. Man is created by God as male and female. So this is what this means. When God created us in his image, he created us male and female to reflect who he is. This means this. Every created human life, male and female, have equal dignity and equal worth. Do you know where that idea came from? It came from right here. Men and women have equal dignity and equal worth. That idea came from right here. Do you know that every human movement from the civil rights movement to any rights movement really has been rooted in a fundamental belief of what is the human person? Let me give you another example. A lot of people, there's a lot of scholars who say, well, a lot of commentators and scholars just say that when the image of, we were made in the image of God, but chapter 3 of Genesis, the fall of man, we lose the image of God. We lose it. It's gone. That's not true. Because from chapter 3 on, God calls us back to remember that we were created in his image. Though it's distorted, we are still created in his image. Therefore, look what it says in Genesis chapter 9. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the, a life of a man. Why? 
Why is, why is God saying here that I'm going to hold you accountable for the life of another human? Why? For God has made man in his own image. So what God's saying here is that I'm going to hold you accountable for another human life. You can't just dispose of a human life any way you choose. Why? Why does every soul have worth? Why does every human, male and female, have dignity? Because God says, I made humanity in my image. You hurt that, you hurt him or her, in some way you're hurting me too. They are my image bearers. Every single human soul, every single one of them. You can't just dispose of human life. There's an inherent worth in every soul. There's something in every human, male and female, though it's distorted by sin, that reflects and represents who God is. It's put there by God. That is the basis of all human rights. The New Testament goes even further. James goes even further. James would go further, but this is what he says. James chapter 3. With our tongue, with our mouths, with our words, we bless the Lord our Father. We did that in worship. And with it, we curse people. Look what he says. Who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. He, he relies on the fact that you were made in the image of God to say that we can't slander one another. If you've ever destroyed somebody with your mouth, the reason why that's so horrific is because that person that you destroyed with your words is made in the image of God. And that same mouth blesses the Lord who you can't see and destroys people who you can, who are made in the image of God. So what Genesis 1 and Genesis 9 and James 3 and many other passages in the Bible say is this. Humanity is an is a infinite visible picture of the is a finite, sorry, is a finite visible picture of the infinite invisible God. That's what humanity is. If you want to write that down somewhere, humanity is a finite visible picture of the infinite invisible God. Us, you, you and me. Mortal humanity. Man. When I say man, I mean mankind, reflecting, imaging, representing the everlasting God. I mean, have you ever read Psalm chapter 8? Have you ever read eight, Psalm 8 or, or maybe remembered this verse when you're looking out at the sky on a clear night, maybe outside of the city lights? You see the, just the vast universe, the, just the, the stars in the heavens, and this, this is exactly what the psalmist did. He said, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? When you sit under the stars, you don't feel big. You feel small. When you sit on the grass in the park under the clouds, you don't feel big. You feel small. When you're walking even downtown amidst all the giant buildings, you don't feel big. You feel small. And the psalmist said the same thing underneath the stars. And he said, when I consider that, I, cons I just see that I'm like this dot on a dot on a dot. And what, who am I that you know me, that you're mindful of me, that you care for me? But then he goes on and says this, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings 
and you've crowned us with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, all the beasts of the fields, all the birds of the heaven, and all the fish of the sea. Whether Whatever passes along the paths of the sea, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So what does the image of God in you represent? If you are made in the image of God, what does that mean? Well, it means two things. The image of God in Genesis 1 tell us two things. First of all, it shows us our rule and our roles, okay? Rule and roles. First rule. It says this twice. It actually, it's like a little um, sandwich. It starts with rule, goes into creation, then goes right back to rule again. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over livestock and over all the earth. What does that mean? What does that mean that you're to have dominion over? It sounds like pretty aggressive, right? Like, I'm going to go take dominion over, if I had dominion over everything, it would be all the pigeons in San Francisco. <laughs> but I digress. Okay, so it's interesting here, and what's very interesting here is that in the world of the ancient Near East, a, a king, what a king would do is he would set up an image of himself, a graven image, a carved image of himself that could be seen in places where he wanted to establish his authority, his rule. So if he ruled from Rome, everywhere else that he ruled, he would set up a statue of himself representing his authority, his rule. He rules here. That's what that would mean. So he set up a statue, a graven image of a king or even a deity, and they believed in some way that this image... This graven image carried the essence of what it represented. So kings would set them up all over their province, all over their, where they ruled, all over their kingdom. Now Israel, interestingly enough, was not allowed to have any graven images. She wasn't allowed to carve them or create them or have them. Israel had no images at all, not in the temple, not outside the temple, nothing. They worshiped an invisible God. Actually, one of the commandments in Exodus 20 is, you shall not make for yourself a, a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or which is on earth beneath. They were not allowed to have any images. Now, why? Well, the first application of that is to worship the Lord in Him only. But if you read the story of the Bible, you would also realize that because God already made something in His image. He already created something in his image, to bear his image, to, as it were, be representation of his authority on earth already established. Who is that? You and me, humanity. That's who was created in his image. You and I were created in his image to rule with authority on his behalf. Now, what does that mean? And how does this play out into having dominion over the whole earth? Well, think about it. You and I are image bearers, pointing towards God. This means that this is not our world. This is not our city. This is not our state. This is not our planet. God created the earth and the cosmos for himself, not for us, for his glory, not our glory. So to rule in subduing and, and ruling, or role actually in subduing and ruling on this earth must be seen as a function of stewardship, not ownership. This means that you are a steward of this planet. This world is not ours to dispose of in any way we please. There's two, thi- there's two ways that Christians normally think about this. Here's the first way. Those who think that this world was given to us by God to do whatever we want to with it. With it. Anything we want. We use all the natural resources to our advantage. But if you read Genesis 1 
And two, you realize they're not really natural resources, they're divine resources. They're given to us by God. There are Christians that think, well, we can use up this planet for us. Now, if you think that way, what you've done is you've set up an idol of self. You think that the world revolves around you. You think this world was for you, but it's not for you, it was for God. Another way that Christians think about ruling the earth is by thinking, well, this world's going to hell anyway, right? And because this world's going to hell, and I've read the end of the Bible, I skipped there actually, and I know that God remakes everything. So if God's going to remake everything anyway, it's all going to hell, what's the use of trying to save a couple trees? What's the use of trying to keep this, keep this planet together? Well, if you think that way, you completely, completely misunderstand the point of being a steward. Let's say I asked you to house it for my wife and I. We're going on vacation. We're going, you're you're going to take care of our house when we're gone. And that's what we had you do. But you knew we had a plan, and we didn't know when. In a couple years, we're saving towards it to remodel our home. So we're going to remodel our house, but we want you to keep watch over it when we're gone on vacation. But you took that to mean, okay, they're going to remodel their home anyways. Why do I even have to take care of it? Because they're going to redo it anyway. So as I'm watching their home when they're on vacation, I'm thrashing the kitchen, leaving the fridge open, destroying everything, ripping the knobs off the stove. Why? I'm selling your like windows, and I'm just I'm destroying everything, the carpet, the bathroom, everything destroyed. And I come back, and I'm like, what did you do with our home? And you're like, dude, aren't you going to remodel it anyway? I know you wanted me to watch it and keep it as a steward, but dude, you're gonna, you know you're going to remodel it. What's the big deal? It's like that. And all that, everyone knows that. That's silly. That's stupid. Well, that's exactly how you think. If you think, well, why should we even care? God's going to redo it anyway. You've misunderstood what it means to be a steward. God made you a steward. And he does not say, okay, hey, you know what? You, you, can, you can like chill on that because, I mean, I'm going to redo it anyway. Just destroy it. He doesn't say that anywhere. He actually says the opposite. So in a sense, to be an environmentalist is to be a good steward of what God has entrusted to us. With one caveat, and this is the caveat. The earth is not God. The earth belongs to God. Now, if I told that point like to my dad, he would say, Dave, San Francisco has completely changed you. You are a total liberal now. Way to go. But wait. There's people that think that. But wait. Now there's roles. God created us male and female. There is something about being male that reflects and represents the image of God. And there is something about being a female that reflects and represents the image of God. And there are male and female roles, godly distinct roles that will play out as, that we play out as image bearers of God. Now you're thinking, whoa, you're a total fundamental. I knew you were going to go there. As soon as you started reading this passage, I knew you were going to go there. But you see how the Bible is neither like liberal or conservative? There's some people that think, okay, I'm a Christian now, so I have to be a complete fundamentalist. No, you don't. Well, then, I live in San Francisco, I have to be complete liberal. No, what we're saying is be biblical. Read the text for itself and go, I'm going to shape my life around this. I want to give four immediate applications or four immediate implications of what it means to be created in the image of God. We're going to be really quick. I hope to unpack a couple of them as the weeks progress. But four things, and they all start with C, so they're really easy to remember. Four things. Here they are. Four implications of the Imago Dei, the image of God. Creature, companionship, choice, and culture. This is what it means to be made in the image of God. Creature, 
companionship, choice, and culture. First one, creature. You are a created being, meaning you are a dependent being. I believe that most identity issues stem from trying to be independent of the fact that you are completely dependent on God. It's by you thinking, I moved to San Francisco, I'm completely independent now. I pay my own bills. I don't need anyone. I don't need anything. I don't even think I really need God. You might not say that out loud, but that's the way you live. You are a creature. That means you were created. That means you are completely dependent on the one who created you and sustained you. And this is where we must draw our self-image, our self-worth, our value from our creatureliness, being created in the image of God. But the second thing is this, companionship. You need other people. We're going to get to this next week. It is not good for man to be alone. I'm not necessarily talking about marriage. I'm talking about community. If you don't think that this is true, you're denying something so fundamental to your humanity that I would say you've almost lost a grip on reality. If you think, I don't need anybody, I don't need community, I don't need Christian community, you're lying to yourself. You need community. If God is triune, and he is, meaning God exists in community, then at the center of the universe is love. See, God didn't create us to get love. He's like, hey, I need someone to love me. I'm going to create humans. And they'll love me. Love already existed in, 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 in the community of God. Love already existed. John makes that clear. Jesus makes that clear in the book of John. Love already existed in the Trinity before he could ever create it. So God didn't create us that we could love him or that we, he could love us. Love already existed. C.S. Lewis says he's created us to invite us into the dance, to invite us into the love of God, to invite us in something they've been sharing for all eternity. That's why we were created. You need, and this is how we need, we need community. You need companionship. You need it. But the third thing is choice. You have free will. You're not just a creature, you're a person. You're a creature of option. This means you have independence. You have God-given independence. I think there's two ways that we get a distorted view of man. The first way is not understanding our createdness, not understanding that we've been made in the image of God. And the second way that we get a distorted view of man is thinking that you're a puppet or a robot. Both of those ways will distort the way that you see man. See, our choice is why we are, there's scriptures on scriptures, why there's scriptures upon scriptures that say things like, choose this day whom you'll serve. And things that, like 2 Corinthians, I implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. There are, there's things like that in scripture because you have a choice. And with this choice, there's also a possibility of really, really, really messing up. And this is a part of being human as well. And the last thing, culture. This is more traditionally called our cultural mandate. This is our ruling and subduing the earth as God's stewards. This means that in whatever profession you are in, please begin to see yourself the way that God sees you. You are a culture maker. Whether you're raising kids, you work in banking or art, photography, law, medicine, 
You have to see yourself as being sent into your respective jobs as a steward of your time, of your talent, of your resources, that every single person that comes, whether you're working retail or whatever, every single person has dignity and has worth, every single one of them. So if you're treating people at your work or people that come to your job for goods and services as people beneath you, you're not being a good culture maker. Every human, the richest to the poorest, has dignity, has worth, because the image of God is in them. That means you practice good business as, as moral agents of, of the kingdom of God. This is, you're bringing in the kingdom of God, kingdom of peace. You live by a different set of rules. You have a cultural mandate to do this. Those four things. But I want to close with this. I want to give you the greatest picture I can of what it means to be made in the image of God. The greatest picture. And it's not by contrasting humanity with animals. A lot of people do that. Like, how do we know we're made in the image of God? Well, look at animals and look at us. We're awesome. And that's how people do it. But that's really not the best way to do it. The best way to know what does it mean to be made in the image of God is to look at the perfect image of God, Jesus. Jesus is the exact representation of God. He is the perfect image of God. Colossians 1.15 says that he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.12 says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. In John 14, Jesus says that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And when you look at Jesus, you know what you find at the very core of what it means to be made in the image of God? I mean, it's not necessarily reason or the ability to make decisions, though that's there and that's good. But you know what it really means to be made in the image of God? At the center of the image of God is love for God and love for humanity. If you study the life of Jesus, and I encourage you to do so, what you will see of what it means to be made in the image of God, you have an intense love for God and love for humanity. One author said, if, if it is true that Christ perfectly images God, then the heart of the image of God must be love. See, but this is where we all fall short. If I gave you other rules to show that you're an image bearer, we, we might be able to get puffed up with pride, like, yeah, I'm a good culture maker. Yeah, I have really good community. Yeah, I have really, really good companionship. Yeah, I, I make really good decisions. And I realize I'm, I'm a creature. Like, you might, you might, like, have those down. But I said, you know what? the truest test of being made in the image of God, that you love God with all your heart and you love people. And you're like, okay, I fail. We all fail at this. I mean, if we are made in the glorious image of God, the majesty of man is God made us in his image. God's, we bear his image, we bear his glory. The simple question is, why don't I feel that way? I mean, when you look in a full-length mirror, the first thought you have isn't like, divine, I'm divine. This is awesome. Like, you don't think that. I mean, no matter what your body type is, no one goes, I have the best. I'm awesome. I am amazing. No one thinks that. About your personality, about anything in your life. Why don't I feel like I'm the image bearer of God? When you look at your circumstances, they don't scream image of God. When you hear the word cancer, your first thought isn't the image of God. And we don't love God the way we should. We don't love others the way that we should. I know that there are people in here like, I want to love God more. I feel that. I just can't do it. I want to love people more. I want more patience. But every time I pay for patience, I'm given a test and I fail. So I stop praying. Why 
Why, if, if, if we're made in God's image, are we so messed up? And here's why. Though we have the capacity to give love and receive love, and we do, the image of God in us has been distorted. It's there, it's been distorted. John Calvin says that the image of God has been destroyed by sin, and though it is not totally annihilated by the fall, it is frightfully deformed. You have a frightfully deformed image of God in you. The image of God, your identity, must be restored. And how is it restored? Only Jesus can restore it. And he starts with our soul. You see how God creates, like, big picture, if you read Genesis 1 and 2? Big picture, then it works down into small. Like, big cosmos type of thing, and then water, dry land, boom, 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 and it goes into man and the soul of man. It's like it gets big and it goes all the way down to small. You know how God redeems it or remakes it? He starts with the soul and he works his way out. Redeeming your soul first, that relationship that you have with God, he restores that first, your soul, and then one day your body, and then one day every single molecule in, this, in the cosmos will be redeemed by Jesus. Jesus redeems our heart, our soul, the soul of a man, and then it works its way out. And the only way that this is done the only way that you can actually be kind of remade in the image of God, where, where God kind of restores his image in you to love him and to love other people and to bear his image rightly, the only way to do it is to look upon Jesus, to gaze upon Jesus, to study Christ, to pray. When you look at Jesus and gaze upon the living God, what you see is you see a love that's so amazing, that's so divine that it would go to the ultimate lengths and the deepest depths to restore you. And not just to restore you, but to restore relationship with God, to redeem you completely. But I want to, I said, I want to close here. I'm sorry. It's an old preacher move. Basically say I'm wrapping up, but I really am this time. I want to read you 2 Corinthians just in case you're going, okay, wait, wait, okay, so God's going to restore his image in me and then I'm going to be awesome? Ah, uh, kind of. Look what it says here in verse 6 in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the God who said, let there be light, says that to our hearts. He's like, let there be light. Do you guys remember that day? Hopefully, it might be even tonight for some people, when God just speaks to your heart and like, let there be light. But listen to what it goes on to say. But we have this treasure. We have this glory of God, this image of God, the all-surpassing knowledge of God. We have it all in jars of clay, small earthen vessels to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. If you look in the mirror and you don't feel very glorious, if you look at your background, your education, where you come from, your family history, your past sins, and you're like, how, how is God going to restore me? Your failures, all of these things, like how is God going to, and, and the way he does it is this, he takes all his all-surpassing glory and image, and he puts it in you, but the shell stays the same, you look the same. You look like an earthen vessel, a jar of clay, and the surpassing glory of God shines beyond that so everybody knows that's God in him and not him.
It's God through him. It's God at work in him, in her. So when you're at work, in your marriage, it looks, we look, as Paul goes on, he says, we look perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Guys, this, this world's going to be hard. And bearing the image of God in us will be difficult. But the reason why God places his image into like such weak people like us is that people, everyone steps back and goes, Jesus. That's God in you. That's God doing that in you. That's the image of God in you restoring you. That's why you're a good husband. That's why you're a good wife. That's why you're a good friend. That's why you're a good worker, co-worker. That's why you're such a good citizen in San Francisco. Not because of you. It's God in you. We desperately need this in our church. We desperately need that in this city. Let's pray that the glory of God, the all-surpassing glory, knowledge, beauty of God will be placed in these weak, weak vessels. Let's pray. God, I know that we're struck down but not destroyed. I know that in our weak, fragile flesh, we bear the very image of God and because of Christ, now the glory of God. And I pray that you would restore that image in us. We need it desperately. Change our hearts. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come into us in a radical way where everyone around us, our, our, our best friends, our community groups, our spouses, our girlfriends and boyfriends would see that this is not them. This is God. Be powerful, mighty through us, Jesus, as you restore us. In your name, amen.